If you have a pre-K kindergartner and you'd like to release them to Kids Connection, that is happening today. Usually the first Sunday of the month we don't do that, but because of the schedule being rearranged with new membership uh, Sunday happening, we've pushed that uh, communion celebration to next week, and so we're going to having Kids Connection today. So that's happening right out these back doors in room three. As you can see there in your notes, we are taking a break from our study through the book of Titus. And we've been, since the first weekend in October, have been just systematically working through the letter to Titus. Uh, And I do have one more sermon left in that book, so we're going to do that the first Sunday in January. I'm excited about that. We'll wrap that up and then move into a study an exposition of the book of First Peter, so that's gonna, that's I'm starting to get excited about that as well. But for now, in the next four weeks, uh, the four weeks in December, we have an Advent series where we're focusing on four words, and these are not small words; these are not casual words. These are extremely important words. You can pin your hopes and dreams and life on these words: hope, peace, love, and joy are the words that we're going to be focusing on uh, in the next four weeks and how those words interact with the biblical story and what God has done in Christ, all right? You know, I wasn't planning to do this because I thought that I'd be up against time, but I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Uh, It's Isaiah 59. We're going to read the whole thing together, the whole thing. Turn to the book of Isaiah 59. And we'll just dive right into this. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophet writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one gives to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. 
transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes him a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. May God bless the reading of his word. Have you thought about the fact that you are hardwired for hope? Every decision you make, every choice you make, every response you have to the situations and relationships of your life is motivated by hope. Your story, the the story of your life is a hope story. Your happiest moments are hope moments. Your saddest moments are when your hopes are dashed or destroyed. You're always looking for hope. You're always attaching the hope of your heart to someone or something. Now here's what hope is. Hope is always an object and an expectation. Hope is always an object and an expectation. You're always hoping in something and asking that something to deliver what it has promised. That's what hope is. Hope is always an object and always an expectation. We tend we tend to look for hope in all the wrong places. We look for hope where it can't be found, and so we're very often disappointed, often frustrated and confused. We, we want things to give us hope that just can't give us hope. We hope in things that don't deliver or under-deliver. I have a hope. Greatness is my hope. I hope to be great. I, want to be, I hope to be a great pastor, a great dad, a great Husband, it really is my hope. And you know what? I'm often disappointed because I'm not great at any of those things. I'm disappointed. The hope that I have for that runs against my own inadequacies time and time and time again. Again, we just read Isaiah 59. If you haven't turned there, turn there now. This is a brilliant hope passage. And the reason this is a brilliant hope passage is because it's written in a very, very dark moment. This is one of the darkest moments in the history of the nation 
of Israel. And so before I describe this moment to you as if the passage itself didn't do a good enough job, before I unpack this for you, I want to ask you this question. When life is hard for you, when it's difficult and confusing, when your story is not what you want your story to be, where do you run for hope? Where do you go? Where, where is your functional hope? I mean, really, where's your hope? The children of Israel, they had been in captivity in Babylon. And they have come back now to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a mess. There are no city walls. There is no temple. There is no central government. There is no legal system. There's no obvious leadership. There's no justice. There's violence in the street, there's, there's massive poverty, there's complete, fundamental, widespread social breakdown. It's a mess. And so into that darkness, we have written for us this brilliant discussion of hope. Maybe one of the most brilliant discussions of hope in all of Scripture. And you know this, but I'll repeat it anyway, it's in the really dark moments of life where your true, actual hope is going to be revealed. And your true, real hope, it will either come through for you, or it will deeply disappoint you. I'll outline this chapter for you. It's there in your notes. I think it's helpful to kind of have it broken down. It divides itself into four sections. The four sections lead us to to, to where real hope can be found. The first section begins... With verse 1, a false charge or a foolish incrimination, as I said in your notes. Then verses 2 through 8 are a divine accusation. When God accuses you, you better listen because he's right. Lots of people accuse us of things. We don't listen. We put it off. We consider the source. When God accuses you, you'd better listen. And then verses 9 through 15 contain a very important confession. Then finally, in the closing verses, 16 through 20, we see God's answer, which is a divine intervention. And as sort of the overarching ideas that surround these four points that will be woven through my explanation of this chapter today, I hope that you see four things about hope. Four things. Here's the first thing. The Christmas story is itself a hope story. The Christmas story is itself a hope story. It's about hope created, hope lost, and hope restored. The second thing may sound a bit confusing to you at first, but we'll understand it as we look at the passage. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The only way you will ever find true hope is to give up on those places where you tend to put your hope in, those places that don't deliver. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The third thing, hope to be reliable, to be be trustworthy, to really be hope, it must fix what is broken. For hope to be hope, it must address the deepest, biggest, darkest dilemmas of our lives. If hope can't fix what's broken, why would you hope in it? And then the fourth thing, Hope is not a situation, hope is not a location, and hope is not an experience. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Now let's look at Isaiah 59, verse 1. 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And you may not really be sure or understand what this verse is doing, so I'll explain. God, through the prophet Isaiah, this is God speaking, God is answering a charge that God's people are making against him. You know, we often, we're, don't detach yourself from this behavior, we often try, you and I, to incriminate God, don't we? When life isn't working, when we're disappointed in some way, it's very tempting for us to bring God into the court of our judgment and to question him, to question his faithfulness, his goodness, his wisdom, his love. It's very tempting to say, God, where are you? God, where is your faithfulness? Where is your grace? I I thought you were near to me. I thought you answered my prayers, God. Where are you? That's exactly what these people in this moment had been doing. They were bringing a charge, an accusation against God. Let me just say this. To whatever degree you do this, to the, de- to the degree that you doubt and question and accuse God in those moments is the degree you will seek everything else besides him in those moments. So God says, no, 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 you got it wrong. What's going on with you, what's going on as you regather, it, 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 this is not a sign that my hands are too short to reach you. What's going on is not a sign that my ears are so dull that I cannot hear you. I'm not the problem, God is saying. In fact, what's going on in the lives of these peoples, these people is exactly the opposite of that. You see, and some of you have experienced this. The guy after the first service told me his story of this exact thing. Often, the grace of God comes to us in those really dark moments. It comes to us in in uncomfortable forms. That's exactly what's going on here. God says, I love you. I want you to return to me in real, true, living faith. So I have brought you into difficulty, not because I don't love you, not because I can't hear your prayer, not because I'm too weak to help. I have done so precisely because I care for you. I love you. I'm near. You've got it wrong. This is a misplaced charge. So in a group this size, some of you, at some time, have been tempted and carried it out, I'm sure, to question God, tempted to doubt God's goodness, tempted to wonder if he hears you. You've said, it's come out of your mouth, God, how could you do that? God, how dare you? It's a false charge. It's a misplaced charge against God. But it's followed here in this text by a divine accusation. We'll look at it starting in verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And it goes on really to describe the real problem. And this is important because here's what I like to think. I like to think that my biggest, deepest problems in life are outside of me and not inside of me. There are problems with situations, there are problems of location, or, or, or there are problems of relationships. I like to think that I'm the good guy. But God shows up and says, let me tell you what's the problem. You're the problem. The problem actually exists inside of you. 
And the, and the tricky part is that it, it seems so much more comforting to say, I'm not the problem. Isn't that why people like protests? We've seen a lot of protests in America these last few months, haven't we? You'll never find somebody in a protest carrying a sign with an arrow pointing down that says, I'm the problem. And that's because the reason people love to protest is because they get to say, ha, you're the problem. I'm not the problem. You're the, the systems, the structures, the ethos, the people. You are the problem. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. I've shared this illustration, I think, before. He was a writer in the early part of the 20th century. He lived in London. He wrote newspaper columns as well as books. He was somewhat of a theologian, certainly a thoughtful sort of philosophical thinker. He was very widely read, very, very popular. And somebody issued him a challenge. And not only him, but they issued all of the most popular writers and thinkers of the day a challenge. And the challenge was, please write back and tell us what's wrong with the world. All right, this is in the midst of the First World War. This is in the midst of great strife on the European continent and really worldwide. What's the problem with the world? So Chesterton writes back. He says, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And that so resonates with what's going on in this passage. He understood the divine accusation. And the minute you sit under God's charge, the minute you realize what he's saying here, it's brilliant diagnostic, you, you see that you are the problem. That we have taken God's beautiful, glorious creation and we have made a mess out of it. It's us. And that means you cannot find hope by running to a new location because guess what you find there? You. You can't run to a new situation because guess what you find there? You. You can't run to a new relationship because guess who's involved? You. You'll never find hope that way. It can't be found. God is exactly right. His diagnostic is exactly right. His accusation is certainly true. The problem is, is there is this thing that lurks inside of me, this thing that is dark and dangerous, and it diverts my desires, and it distorts my language, and it drives my behavior. And the prophet here, he uses three words for this. Three words. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. The first word is iniquity. Iniquity means moral uncleanness. Moral uncleanness. I I like to think that I'm pure, but I'm not pure. My motives aren't pure. My desires aren't always pure. There's moral uncleanness inside of me. Iniquity. Second word is transgression. Transgression is high-handed rebellion. It's willingly stepping over boundaries that you know are there. I willingly step over boundaries of God's rules. I do it because I don't care. I know they're there. It's high-handed rebellion. I know what the law says. I know what the rule says. I know what pleases him. I do the opposite. The third word is sin. Sin sin is falling short of the mark again and again and again. It's pulling back the arrow with the bow as far as I can, and every time it falls short of the target. Every time. 
So because there's iniquity inside of me, because there is transgression inside of me, because there is sin inside of me, I make a mess of God's good creation. I contribute heavily to the problem. You can't just blame situations. You can't blame locations. You can't blame other people because at the bottom of all of that is us. It's you. Our greatest problem, the thing that most needs to be fixed, is inside of us, not outside of us. That's the truth. And you'll never find hope if you don't listen to that accusation from God, if you don't actually believe it. Well, that accusation is followed by a confession. It's the third point in your notes. Look at verse 9 and following. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. That's a description of people who have completely lost their way. It's a description of you when you have lost your way. When, when, when you're so lost, all of a sudden, it's like someone has turned off the lights of your life and you are in the dark. This is the picture of people who are groping along the wall. If you've ever been in a dark room and you're, and you're fumbling for the light, but you just can't find it, and you're just using the wall to kind of keep you going in the right direction, that's the picture given here. And when you've lost your way, when you're in this spot, you're at a very significant moment of decision. Very significant moment. Because in this moment, you will either point the finger or you'll make a confession. Point the finger or make the confession. That's exactly what happens next. Notice verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. God, we accept it. I accept it. I'm the problem. It is me. And once you're there, once you're there, you're now in a very hopeless place. An utterly hopeless place. Because you're saying, I've got a big, deep abiding problem that I cannot solve. Because I can run from a situation and I can run from a location and I can run from a relationship, but I can't run from me. If you run from you as fast as you can, when you get to the other side, you're always there with you. You can't run from you because you always show up at the end of the run. This is really hopeless. This is God, I've got a problem that I can't solve. And when you say those words, you're saying not only is it hopeless to hope in yourself, but it's hopeless to hope in anybody else because everybody else suffers from the exact same condition. And so all the locations and all the situations and all the populations and places are filled with people who are as desperate and as hopeless as you are. There's no hope to be found. There's no hope to be found. Creation has no ability whatsoever to be your Messiah. 
You're not going to meet a person who will give you life. You're not going to get a job that will make your life worth living. You're not going to own a possession that will give you the happiness that you seek. You're not going to have an experience that will ultimately fulfill you. None of those things will ever do that. It really is hopelessness. It's hopelessness that begins to open the doorway to hope. Look at the brilliance of where this passage goes next, starting in the second half of verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So here's what God is saying. God looks around and says this, there's no horizontal place for hope to be found, none. No person, no created thing is able to give you the hope that you're seeking. No one's doesn't work. And so in light of this disaster, in light of all of this lostness, in light of all this rebellion and transgressing and sin and iniquity, look what God does next. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't, he doesn't say, man, I've had it. I'm just going to wipe them out. Here's what he does. Verse 15. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Whenever you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, that's one of the names of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So God is saying, now that you're at this moment where you, where you utterly have no hope, nowhere to look, I'm going to send you hope. But it won't be a situation, and it won't be a human relationship, and it won't be a new location. It will be a person, and his name is Jesus. Hope is going to come. That's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is hope coming. That's why the angels sang those glorious songs. That's why the wise men came to worship. That's why the shepherds were so blown away, because hope had invaded the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope had come. Hope that had been so long lost, hope that had been so destroyed, is now appearing in the person of Jesus. And that promised hope would bring two things with him. Two things, justice and grace. Hope would bring justice and grace. Look at the verses that follow. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. This God, this hope is going to deal with evil. He's going to punish wrong. Evil will be repaid. If you read the Bible, if you look at the whole of Scripture, God's posture toward evil is both very patient, but also very sobering. It should make sinners very serious and very afraid when they think about evil. And it's very clear that the prophet is saying that that this world is a moral world ruled by God, by a God who is holy, and therefore he takes sin seriously. Sin is serious. Sin is evil. Sin is disastrous, and sin leads to death. And so this holy God, he will never say, you know, it's okay for you to sin. 
I'm okay with it. It's okay for you to transgress. It's okay for you to have iniquity. You know, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. I'm fine. Now, this is a holy God who despises sin. He will not tolerate it. He will punish every sin. And the problem with me is that I, I don't always see sin as sinful. Sin doesn't always look evil to me. And, and, and what I mean by that is that if you're not feeling the danger of sin at the moment that it begins to rear its head, if you're not feeling the danger of that, then it doesn't seem evil to you either. You may like to feel the buzz of your temporary independence more than the severe nature of sin, and that's a very dangerous place to be. But it's very clear that this is a God, this is a God here who, who is who is absolutely, perfectly committed to justice. Sin will be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with. He will reckon it. And there's comfort in those words. There's comfort in that idea. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, Jay, this doesn't sound very comforting. This isn't really hopeful. But here's the comfort. You would not want to live in a world that was ruled by someone who didn't care about justice. You wouldn't want to live in a world where the being ruling the world was incapable of being angry with evil. So there is a way in which God's righteous anger, in which his holy justice, those two things, those are the actual hope of the universe. God's anger with sin and his, and his commitment to justice means that he will not rest until sin is forever defeated. Sin will one day forever be defeated because we have a just and holy God. If that were not true, our hope would be a very small thing, if anything at all. But he doesn't only come armed with justice. He comes armed with grace. Look at those words there. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. I'm going to send a redeemer. Redemption is a beautiful term. To redeem means to buy something back. God's saying, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to live on your behalf the perfect life that you could not live. The sin problem you have, he will not have. And he'll live a perfect life in your place. He's going to take your sin on himself and die the death you should have died. And that death will actually satisfy God's justice. And then he, Jesus, he's going to rise again and he's going to really trample and conquer over our great enemy death so that he can give to you eternal life. And so because your sin, because of the work of Jesus, no longer separates you from God, but reconciles you to God, that's redemption. Verses 16 through 20 are a, predi- are a prediction of the cross of Jesus Christ. They're really an announcement of the cross. Because on the cross, the, the holy justice of God and the amazing grace of God, they meet. And in that moment, the justice of God is poured out against Christ. He bears the anger of God. He takes all the penalty that was ours And within that, the grace of God explodes in abundant forgiveness and mercy. On the cross, the one who is hope brings together the justice and the grace of God. 
Two things that don't seem compatible are made compatible because of the work of Jesus. And therefore, hope is returned because that moment where justice and grace meet delivers to us the one thing we need. It gives us the help that we have to have for our deepest problem that puts us in that hopeless state. It takes care of our sin. These Old Testament saints, they were living in a messy time. They were living in the messiness between the already and the not yet. Already they had been delivered from Egypt. Already the law had been given. Already the prophets had spoken. Already the glory of God had had lived in the center of the people of Israel. But not yet had their Messiah come. The real Redeemer they were still waiting for. They were living in messiness and they were holding on to hope. And you know what? We also live in the middle of the already and the not yet. Already Jesus has come. Already he has lived and died and and, and rose again on our behalf. Already the, the, the word has been given. Already the spirit has been given. But not yet has sin completely been defeated and done away with. Not yet are we in that final kingdom. And so in that messiness of life between the already and the not yet, you know what you need? You need hope. I need hope. This place is a mess. And hope can only be hope when it's placed in the person of the Lord Jesus, who not only enters your difficulty here and now, but promises you a place in eternity where there will be no sickness and there will be no suffering and there will be no sin and will live with him in a place of absolute peace and absolute righteousness and absolute joy forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Have you met hope? Has hope invaded your life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's hope in my world. And it's certainty because hope has come and hope will come again. Hope has come to deliver us out of the mess And hope will come to ultimately redeem all the mess. He did it once, he'll do it again. There's where our hope lies. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have access to you because of what he did for us and in our place. Lord, we admit we are a people of iniquity, of transgression, of sin. And that, that puts us in a really bad way. And Lord, left to ourselves, we are certainly hopeless. And so God, we thank you that you sent us hope in, in the person of your son. And Lord, we can have hope each day because we know him. And our hope will be realized because we'll know him forever. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day when he comes. But this day, as we wait, Lord, we want to live faithful lives that honor you, that worship you. Lord, thank you for our time together today. I pray if there's anybody here that that is hopeless, God, that's a great place to be this morning because hope is sitting in front of them in the person of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that they would put 
their hope and their trust in him this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.